This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I wanted to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. Come down Twanfield and we'll see them What you're doing down here, you surely man. Oh, and Ken and Murphy favourite Monday's Irish Science Second Captain's Football Podcast and Transfer Deadline Day. Gentlemen, has been taken over by two big storylines. Which are? Number Connected. Number one. Hi, Karen. Hi, Karen. Hello there, all. Uh, Pep Guardiola is officially taking over Manchester City on July 1st. Mm-hmm. Yes. And number two, Manuel Pellegrini is officially the nicest guy in football. Why? Why do you say that? Because <laughs> Pellegrini does his press conference and says, oh yeah, by the way, uh, this thing is happening. Gonna be getting the boot from this job. Um, but just so you all know, I'm, I, I'm aware of this, have been for a while, and it's all good at me. Yeah. I move on. Um, well, Nice. Well, he—he, he, I, I think City announced it in a statement, but Pellegrini has basically spoken. I mean, it—it it sounds as though this has happened essentially at Pellegrini's instigation. Mm-hmm. So he says, um, "Quotes from Pellegrini are: Before I finish, I want to tell you I've talked with the club and I will finish my contract on the original date. I signed for one year more, but with the clause that the club or me can choose not to use that stuff now. So I finish here on the original date, June thirtieth. So there is not the speculation. The club are not doing anything behind me." I knew this one month ago, but I don't think it's good to have rumour or speculation about these things. So I prefer to finish today, which is why I've told the players and I've told the press. Finish the, he doesn't mean he's finishing today, by the way. Man, he's still the Man City manager. Uh, I also spoke to the club two weeks ago and said that I'd do it. So uh, that seems to have his apparent want to have a desire to have this out in the open. Um, seems to have been behind City's decision uh, to say Manchester City can confirm that in recent weeks it has uh, it has commenced and finalised uh, contractual negotiations with Pep Guardiola to become MCFC head coach for the 16-17 EPL season onwards. The contract is for three years. These negotiations were a recommencement of discussions that were curtailed in 2012. 
Out of respect for Manuel Pellegrini and the players, the club wishes to make its decision public to remove the unnecessary burden of speculation. Manuel Pellegrini, who is fully supportive of the decision to make this communication, is entirely focused on achieving his targets for the season ahead of retaining uh, the respect and commitment of all involved with the leadership of the club. So, yeah, no problems there. Everyone's cool with this. I'd say Pellegrini might even be, you know... Telling the truth a yeah. small bit. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, 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 that wouldn't surprise me unduly. Uh, I mean, guys get the sack all the time. I mean, this is among the nicer ways to get the boot from a job as a football manager, I would have thought. Uh, being replaced uh, being replaced at the end of your contract, effectively, mm. by the best manager in the world. Yeah. I mean, there are much worse ways to lose a job, really. Yeah. Where, unfortunately, Pep Guardiola's time in the Premier League will not coincide with John Terry's 20-year era as the most legendary force in the game. Uh, he is going to be heading to, well, nobody really knows where, but he, he dropped this into his post-match mix zone after a fairly routine FA Cup game. We'll chat about that with John Bruin later, and we'll talk to Emmett Malone in the studio about John Delaney's reluctance to engage with Irish football reporters as a whole. The, uh, the FAI had a strategic report late last week uh, to which media partners, apparently, according to Emmett, were invited, but a lot of reporters weren't invited, so, st- so still no chance to maybe take up John Delaney on various issues around Irish football for quite a lot of the reporters that follow it on a day-to-day basis, but we'll start with the report on sport. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, this Guardiola story, I suppose, is a big story by virtue of the fact that it has, you know, been confirmed, although it is what everybody thought was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it seemed as though when he left, Bar- or when he announced he was leaving Bayern um, City, had always seemed quite confident they would be the ones who got it. Now, we know that they are. Um, now, there had been... Really, the the only other team that had been... Because uh, we knew he was going to England, he said as much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only other team that really had been thought to be in the running there was Manchester United, who were reported a couple of weeks ago to have met with Guardiola in Paris. Uh, to uh, And that was... I think that was just a couple of days after they'd beaten Liverpool as well. So it was a poorly timed story to come out again, you know. <laughs> didn't really Give Van Hal much time. Poor old Van Hal. Just beating Liverpool and they're apparently reported to be meeting Guardiola, but he, he seemed to have told them no. So it is an interesting choice to go to City rather than uh, Manchester United. And City refer there to the fact that these, uh, they they were talking to him before in 2012. So that would have been obviously after he left Barcelona, before he joined Bayern. And they evidently made him an offer at that stage. Alex Ferguson says he did that as well. Met him for dinner, remember, in New York. Um, but maybe there's something about maybe Guardiola looking at it thought I'm not sure that I want to replace Alex Ferguson he wouldn't be replacing Alex Ferguson he'd be replacing Louis Van Hal, but they're all replacing Ferguson really <laughs> yeah, they really are um, and maybe there is a sense in which Ferguson's achievement is so monumental as to automatically dwarf anything anyone could do uh, from this point on at least for the next few years um, I mean, it, it is also possible that Pep Guardiola fancied Manchester City as being a, a job which would... I mean, there, there are obvious advantages to being the Man City coach. You know, they're, uh, uh, it's more of a blank slate, I think, for Guardiola than a club like Manchester United, where, you, you know, you might, they might want you to have Ryan Giggs as the assistant and, you know, you've got Scholes and Rio, uh, you know, Kino and whoever, all assessing your performance, you know, in apparently every game. 
Whereas with Man City, it's it's not really like that. You know, they don't they don't really have all these um, this you know certainly not a recent cadre of like great players uh, who aren't you know on the I mean this is Vieira I suppose if you can consider him a Man City player he's on the payroll though kind of you know he he's 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 a company man now you know they don't have this kind of chorus analyzing their every move although he has been at Bayern Munich which does have that. yeah so maybe and he's, he doesn't like it right okay. Barcelona and Bayern are two really pressurized jobs from a media point of view, which is the part of the job that Guardiola doesn't like. And he's talked before about how he doesn't like doing this. Uh, and he's, you know, he's the, uh, uh, well, remember the big row he had with Mourinho? Oh, he's the chief. He's the chief in here. But once we get out there, you know, indicating the press, the difference between the press room and the pitch. And, uh, so maybe he thinks Manchester will be a nice little bold hole for him. Although I wonder, although I wonder what Manchester United are going to do now. I wonder if I any of the words I've just said. They have a responsibility to the game, to the sport. I think Manchester United, don't they? Surely now to hire I, a radio. I, mean, I think they, they do. I think they do. I mean, it's only right. Uh, give the people what they want. You know, if, if they want headlines... You know, yeah. if uh, Ed, if Ed Woodward is all about, uh, or was it Ed Woodward that was talking about uh, Twitter fans and you know st- uh, the the res- the responsibility of Manchester United is to be in the news? Yeah. Well, then I think the world's the, the world's biggest TV show that was yeah. Richard Arnold. We're the yes. world's we're the yeah. world's biggest TV show. Two hundred hours of live content into the you know billions of households <laughs> around the world. You know, and I mean, for instance, uh, who is it? Uh, I saw. Uh, uh, a tweet from someone there was it Jim White, the Telegraph journalist, who who was saying, "Oh, all right, so you're uh, Guardiola and Klopp at your two biggest rivals, and you've got Louis Van Gaal. Mm-hmm. Good job." So uh, you know, I think that there's going to be now pressure at Manchester United to respond here because I think that the, there will also be an element of recrimination. I think that it will be difficult for for Manchester United to swallow this to an extent. There's no doubt that Guardiola is the coach everybody would would have liked to have had. He is the one coach, really, you know, looking around Europe at the moment, who has both uh, an outstanding record of achievement, you know, proven record of brilliant achievement with two of, of the biggest clubs around, but also of inventing almost a new kind of football, you know, a kind of a level of football which hadn't been seen before, certainly at Barcelona, and something different from what anyone at Bayern had ever seen before. Not necessarily universally popular at Bayern, but they've they have gone through the league like a combine harvester. You know, they've completely mm-hmm. destroyed the league three years in a row and only been stopped in the Champions League by really good, really outstanding Real Madrid and Barcelona teams. Um, he is the man. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're looking for a guy who can who can really put your team onto onto get your team up to the next level, this is the guy. Man City get a lot of praise for how they run the club given that nobody really knew what to expect when the current owners took over, aside from a lot of money. <laughs> but the the brain part of the acumen that has gone with that has been commented upon quite a lot. Is this the fruition of all that clever work that they've done? I mean, if they had gone almost like a cold call to Pep Guardiola in now, or even 2012 or now in 2016, said, Pep, we'd love you to take over, he might say, oh, I'm not so sure. But the fact that they've got Bagheerstein and these guys in there already, mm. which everyone assumed at the time was, okay, yeah, maybe it's partly because of this great job they did at Barcelona, but really it's because they want to get Pep Guardiola to manage them at some stage. They've gone about things in quite a clever way to mm. land this coach. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, even if you look at the players that they've signed, I mean, they, you know, they have, 
you know, like Kevin De Bruyne and Ryan Sterling are the type of players I can imagine mm. Pep Guardiola finding useful. Um, you know, I think it, uh, they, they've been kind of setting themselves up uh, as an ideal kind of destination for him for a while, which I don't, which Manchester United haven't. Obviously, Manchester United have, have kind of been involved in this chaotic situation for for years now. Um, with with little, you know, sacking a manager, you know, another manager who's come in. The signings don't really seem to, seem to make much sense. It does look like a bit of a circus. You know, if you were Guardiola looking on from the outside, then you're thinking, well, do I want to go and stand there underneath the Sir Alex Ferguson stand and see if I can write a new page of history mm. when my contribution is destined to be a, a sort of a three-year P.S., Guardiola was here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas c- compared to Manchester City, where you've got the opportunity to, to invent the entire modern history of that, of that club. You yeah, know, so I wouldn't be too sure about that, though. I mean, it, it, uh, you said earlier that you know, you're, taking, you're still taking over after Ferguson uh, isn't everyone. I mean, I don't know about that either. I mean, at this stage, I mean, what is, what is damaging about, about Ferg- the Ferguson legacy? Is, that, well, is there an expectation of trophies? I mean... You know, it's Pep Guardiola. Wherever Pep Guardiola goes, people are going to expect that he wins trophies. Mm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like, you, the idea would be that he's taking over City because there's no history there. There's no, as a result, no weight of history. But I mean, he's been in charge of Barcelona and Bayern Munich. And maybe, yeah, maybe this is why he wants to yeah. look at something different. I mean, there's also the fact the only that other reason City is gigs as well, by the way. And I mean, <laughs> that's not much of a problem, I don't think. If you're <laughs> Pep Guardiola, Ryan, thanks so much for your service. But you know, it's sometimes it's necessary to spread your wings, mm. uh, to spread your wings and fly. You know, in the in, out there in the world, a ship at port, you know, will never run into trouble, but. Ships weren't built to be <laughs> in ports, right? There is, there is a fact that uh, uh, Guardiola only seems to like to do short-term jobs. I mean, City are saying this is, for, this is a three-year contract. You know, and so far, he stayed the extra year at Barcelona. It was three years at Bayern. You know, you look at Bayern and you think, why would anyone leave that job, you know, with, with such a good team? Uh, but that's, that's evidently the way that he wants to live his life. He doesn't want to be... He doesn't want to do what, you know, Wenger and Ferguson did. It's, it's, it's not... The way that he looks at it, he likes to come in and make a contribution, do do his work for a couple of years, leave, and if 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 that's your time frame, then you'd have to say Man City squad looks a much better bet of actually achieving something in that time frame than Manchester United's. Manchester United have the resources to build a really good team. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we've seen that happen many times over the years, but maybe by the time they'd done that, Pep would already be coming to the end of his three years. So. Uh, one way or another, um, City, I've got the, I've got the map. If you're Pep Guardiola and you're watching Manchester City for the rest of the season, as I'm sure you will, you'll be paying a certain amount of attention to them. Would you be really hoping that they don't go and do what Yupankas did, what Bayern Munich did under Yupankas, and win their league title and win the Champions League, hmm. thereby putting a little bit of extra pressure on you amongst the amongst the locals? Yeah, uh, I think so. I think I think probably he, he he's not going to be too upset if they manage to, if they get knocked out of the Champions League. Ideally, I suppose he'd knock them out himself. That would be the best way to do it. Um, I mean, Bayern, that happened with Bayern, but but all that all that really did was it it made his job more difficult certainly, but it kind of only reinforced an already existing superiority complex in. Bavaria, where the the problem that he had wasn't so much oh these players have have won everything. How can I motivate them? Because there was a way to motivate the players. 
the way to motivate the players, which is what he did, was to was to say, okay, you've been playing, so you've you've won what you've won playing a certain type of football, but we're not gonna, we're not going to change things up here. And he kind of set them uh, challenges on the field in terms of playing the game in a different way, and you know what he's able to persuade them is a higher level, which I think was I think he was able to. I don't. I don't. I think when you look at Bayern Munich, you can't question their motivation. They play really well in almost every match. You know, they. It's just the semi-finals of the Champions League that had had been problematic. But again, it's not even a problem of motivation. There, it was just they got done. You know what I mean? Um, the problem that he had wasn't so much with the players and their being sated. It was with the uh, kind of media and the tradition of a gigantic club. That kind of there's something impertinent about you know little man in a v-neck sweater coming in here and telling us how to play this game that we've dominated for how many years certainly more than his little club you know what i mean <laughs> Bayern have got a have still got more european cups than barcelona don't come in here and and teach granny how to suck eggs that was the problem it wasn't so much i don't think with the players as with the media and with the older players and you know Stefan effenberg and all this kind of thing maybe he didn't fancy that kind of thing happening again at manchester united seeing what's happened to the van hal as well van hal uh, is a coach who he has huge regard for and learned a lot from. I don't know, maybe they've talked about it. I'm speculating now. That's all right. Yeah, that's uh, no, I think it's pretty good news for the Premier League that Pep Guardiola oh, is yeah. in there. Just to wrap, wrap up on that, the FAI strategic report, Ken, was out late last week, Friday. It was, but so little is known about what happened because uh, nobody, none of the press, or very few uh, members of the press were invited to the press launch, uh, which was on Friday. No one really was invited, apart from you know there was the RT Sport were there because because they had some quotes from John Delaney on their website. Um, Delaney says, "Yeah, Emmett said that uh, that media partners were there, but uh, well, we weren't there anyway. We we know that. Not an official media partner. More media amigos, uh, media fellow travelers on the one road with the FAI, uh, the road to France uh, that we're all." Bound. And John Delaney is pretty excited about that road. Since qualifying, the hype around us going to the Euros is incredible. It is the most sought after. It is the most sought after and looked forward to event in sport in this particular year. The soccer team are the people's team. They really are. When the Irish team gets to major tournaments, this country shuts down. We're going to see that next June for sure. I think it's great that 100 years since 1916 that we'll hopefully have new sporting heroes 100 years later in France. And hopefully the Irish team can do this country proud. <laughs> so there you go. Um, I'm not sure why. What, why he's making the, yeah, what the connection yeah, is there. Yeah. Hopefully nobody will have to die uh, this, <laughs> this time around with this celebration of Irishness. Uh, that we plan to stage. Well, there could be a back. Uh, there could be a gap in the market here. I, I haven't actually seen Rebellion, for example. But, oh yeah. You know, if you're talking about, there's a the, a gap maybe there for some 1916 nostalgia. I know there's plenty of it this year, but Re Rebellion was expected to be a big part of it, and I'm sure it has been, yeah. albeit it hasn't exactly been universally acclaimed by the critics. No. So maybe there's just I mean, Delaney's thinking. You know, some of these, some of these 2016, 1916 celebrations mightn't end up being all they're cracked up to be. So why can't Euro 2016? But be when the, you're be in a group celebration? of Sweden, Belgium, and Italy, <laughs> we're guaranteed to live up to our end of the bargain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't understand what the purpose of of the reference to 1916. I was struck by the fact that John Delaney was walking around South Tipperary uh, recently with Alan Kelly. This was reported on at the time, the Labour uh, politician. Um, and South Tipperary, as I'm sure John Delaney knows, 
as that's one of the places he's from. Mm. You know, <laughs> you know, he's there's obviously a Waterford lineage, there's a Tipperary lineage, and there's I mean, he was on the bus with Brian Cody uh, mm. with the, Celebrating. the hurlers. So you know, there's there's a there's a lot of lineages that go into the a lot of tributary streams flowing into the Great River that is John Delaney. Mm. One of them is Tipperary, and I'm sure he must know that. You know, Tipperary, South Tipperary, particularly back in the day, was a place where there was quite a lot of uh, big British army barracks. Uh, and the local Tommies, many of many of whom would have spoken in drawling Irish brogues, owned, uh, would have been out there kicking, kicking the ball around. I'm, a soccer ball I'm talking, I'm talking about now. Mm. Uh, in the meadows and the fields around the looming imperial structure of the barracks. And... Uh, yeah, you know, people in the neighborhood were all good friends. Of course, that all changed sort of in the years following 1916 when uh, Care Park FC was designated an enemy institution by the South Tipperary IRA 3rd Brigade. <laughs> and and uh, relations, uh, relations soured. Mm. Uh, barracks were burned down. A lot of bad things happened. Uh, so I'm not sure everybody in the Sagittarius soccer community, always thinks of 1916 with quite the same fondness as John Delaney obviously has. But that's history, Owen. It's, it's complicated, you know? It's one reason not to uh, casually throw around references uh, when, you know, sometimes you, you may even appear to contradict your, your own uh, actions. Gary Neville, again, is uh, finding himself in a little bit of bother at the moment. Yeah, he is. He, he, can't, he can't buy a win. Oh, what a pity. Peter Lim would surely buy him a win if it if could be arranged. there was a market for such a thing, yeah. Uh, but he, unfortunately, he can't do it. He can't beat anyone in this league. Uh, and we're not talking about the toughest league in the world. Now, Gary Neville did manage to get a 2-2 draw. Gary Neville's Valencia, I should say. Not Gary Neville himself. Got a 2-2 draw against Real Madrid. And the first match uh, before he took over, he was watching from the stands as as his brother Phil helped Valencia towards a one-all draw with Barcelona. Uh, but since then, the highlight of his time managing in Spain has been a video in which he appeared in a video feature in El Dia Después where they showed him on the sideline managing Valencia. And what the video essentially revealed was Gary Neville slowly losing his ability to speak Spanish mm -hmm. as the pressure increased in the match. Uh, so he was initially shouting out Words like Adelante, Mas Adelante. Uh, but then uh, that turned into just a, a stream of like screamed curses. He was particularly, <laughs> <laughs> like <He> was particularly <laughs> unimpressed with uh, a substitute who was very slow in warming up. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think there was yeah. even a hint of Spanish. It was, be it was, ready. Be, re be ready. That was a be ready. Be ready. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you could see the tough, the steely. The steeliness behind the bonhomie of Gary Neville there, mm. as he instructed that substitute to be ready. Um, but yeah, they they lost to Sporting Gijon, and you know, nineteenth in the league they are. They lost uh, all their games leading up to this. Uh, well, their last five in a row, at least in the league, and uh, it's really not looking good. Five points from twenty-five, or five points from twenty-four, I should say, since he took over. He really is going to have to win a game soon because the crowd. Uh, crowd was getting angry mainly with the players calling them mercenaries, but everybody was doing the... They, it wasn't just the White Hankies. They were, whatever cloth came to hand, they were giving them the um, treatment. It's such a tough job, though. Whatever about having a summer to prepare for it or a few months to think about, to learn Spanish and to think about what you're going to do with this team, to be just lumped straight into it from a completely different career, pretty much, is it's, it's, it was always going to be tricky, I think. 
Oh, yeah, I think so. It's a very, very tricky job to take on as a first job. I mean, it's your first job as a manager and you're managing one of the biggest clubs in Spain and you don't speak Spanish. That's a difficult job. <laughs> yeah. You know, how do you think that's going to, you know, supreme confidence in his own abilities uh, to, you know, to, to accept the job. Uh, and obviously, Phil Neville was part of the staff already and Peter Lim is a, you know, acquaintance of his let's say um, so it's not as though he's going walking completely blind into the job but still Valencia are a club that have a lot of fans with certain expectations of you know where they should be and losing 1-0 at home to Sporting Gijon does not enter into their idea of what's acceptable um, I think Garnival's next game is going to be against Barcelona in the cup semi-final and based on Barcelona's performance against Atletico over the weekend that is going to be another painful night uh, for him Barcelona's uh, Goal, the first goal against the Lego was one of the best goals of the year. I think we were talking about their build-up only the other day. This was a really protracted build-up, and it kind of showed the difference between this Barcelona and the one that Guardiola used to manage. Um, there was uh, just this, you know, essentially Atletico never managed to get on the ball in almost two minutes, which featured um, Suarez being put through for a shot that was saved. Uh, Suarez and Messi both trying to dribble through the defence. Dani Alves several times crossing it from the right, which is the real difference. You'd never have seen uh, Pep Guardiola's team do that, take a risk with possession. Now I'm going to I'm going to lump this one into the box, but Barcelona kind of do that as well now, uh, and eventually managed to finish it off with a more typical kind of Neymar to Jordi Alba to Messi cracked it into the corner. A really brilliant goal. Atletico then went went a little bit crazy and started getting sent off. Nine Ooh, men. Yeah. Uh, a painful night for Leo Messi. Yeah, Messi. Although I imagine a more painful in the long term for Felipe Luis, the man who uh, who fouled him. I actually thought that Felipe Luis was going for the ball. I mean, you can see the ball is there. Like he he puts his foot through the ball. You know what I mean? It's right there. But unfortunately, his studs then connect with Lionel Messi's mm. knee. And he has got those studs of reason behind. He's, he, he is coming down in one of those dangerous-looking downward motions towards uh, the ball. Is there? Sure. Yeah. Messi's kneecap is also there as well. It's the problem. Messi's, yeah. So, I mean, it's you just can't really do that to Lionel Messi anymore. I mean, Christian Vieira saw at halftime and being sports saying Felipe Luis should be banned for 10 weeks, uh, should change country. Uh, this is what happens if you do this to Lionel Messi now. It's like <laughs> it's like a kind of a, a cultural vandalism. You know what I mean? If he was to go into one of the museums and, like, tear down one of the Goyas and, like, throw it out the window, that's kind of the level of... Insolence that Felipe Luis, if he if you attack, if attack a wonder of the world like Messi, it's like taking a hammer to the Pieta. You know, yeah. you can't uh, be expected to 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 be allowed away allowed away with that kind of thing. One last story. Well, we haven't actually mentioned down the FA Cup and the, no, no. I mean, I'm surprised we didn't mention the FA Cup because given the rampant runaway popularity of our no. previous, well, what? Well, I, all I'm this? saying is that there was Where's a lot of. Gone? There was a lot of FA Cup games over the weekend, and what that implies oh, no. is <laughs> FA Cup oh, goals. Oh. Aruna Kone yeah. and Aaron Lennon yeah. were the toffee twins, causing a sticky situation for Carlisle. As for Ross Barkley, his late goal suggested the Blue Faithful ought to dub him Ross Bitely. Can I? That's his razor-sharp <laughs> shot. Myself, no? Saw them slightly to the fifth round. MK Dons won, Chelsea 5. Oscar ran wild as Chelsea put on a display of the importance of being serviced from good areas by your teammates. Didn't we have a meeting? Yeah, I thought we had a meeting. The Dons grabbed a deflected equalizer through Potter, but the Blues reasserted their superiority through Oscar and Traore before Eden Hazard proved that there is still danger in paradise. Arsenal 2, 
Burnley won. Copy of the contract here. Callum Chambers sure fired the Gunners into the lead against the Clarets before a spell of tentative Burnley form, foreplay came to a thrilling climax. Climax. <laughs> Courtesy of Sam, the vinegar strokes Vokes. But then Chilean magician Alexis Sanchez took a stick, stick and jammed it into Burnley spokes, <laughs> making sure all the jokes were on Vokes and the other bloke. <laughs> West Brom 2, Peterborough yeah, cool. 2. Baggy's boss, Tony Pielis, that Saito Berahino out of the back. He's been keeping him in, and the pocket powerhouse had soon bagged the opener from 25 yards. But Posh's Shaquille Coolthurst equalized before Berahino bagged his brace. But there was another baggy boo-boo that's careless defending that John Taylor in to bag the equalizer. <laughs> Colchester 1, Spurs 4. Spurs dug cruelly into the sweat-streaked flanks of Colchester as Mauricio Pochettino's Lily White Colts galloped into the fifth round. Master Chadley scored with both head and foot before Spurs added a third to Eric God Loves a Dyer. The years then profited from an own goal by Ben Davis before Tom Carroll netted a fourth. Shrewsbury no, 3, no, 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 no. three Sheffield Wednesday 2. The animal kingdom was turned on its head at New Meadow, where the shrews, for once, got one over on the owls. Lewis McGugan hammered home a 35-yard free kick, and it looked as though the home side were in the process of being swallowed and turned into a tiny pellet of hair and claws. But just as the tasty morsel seemed sure to disappear down the owl's craw, John Luis <laughs> Akpak Pro ensured it stuck there with a 35th-minute leveler. Yeah, McGugan slammed in another from range, but it's not for nothing that shrews are famed for their frenetic energy and high metabolic rate. Shrewsbury's <laughs> defense is so poor that they frequently have to consume several times their own body weight in goals to survive. <laughs> their appetite for goals proved voracious as first Sean Wally snared the owls from the spot, and then Jack Grimmer sealed a fairytale ending. That is a fairytale ending uh, to yeah. Kennedy's FA Cup fourth round goals round. I'll give, you, I'll give you one thing, Ken. You don't give up on these things. Mm. God loves a dire. That's all Vokes. That's no, what was it? The vinegar strokes, folks. Oh, yeah, okay, That's sorry. it for Kennedy's report on sport. Is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Ardem Malone is in studio for our, our very first John Delaney chat of a big year. Emmett, how are you? Hi Owen, how's it going? Uh, I'm the first of many, I'm sure. First of many, I would, I would imagine, yeah. This this one centres around this strategic plan that was launched late last week. Uh, a press launch, I guess you would call it, albeit they were very selective in terms of, the FBI were very selective in terms of which press they actually invited. Yeah. Why do you think yeah. that was the case? Why wasn't it just... Uh, yeah, press launch might be to actually flatter it, really. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it was a launch uh, and a couple of members of the press were there. Uh, media partners only. Um uh, these things, it, it was strange in the circumstances. I mean, you know, when 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 they uh, you know announce financial results and uh, and you know talk about the stadium and ten year tickets and everything like that, you can kind of understand to some extent that you know John Delaney's not really going to want to uh, deal with the press because a lot of those things haven't gone quite to plan. But um, but it's the launch of a strategic plan is generally a, a, you know a, a time for you know a bit of fanfare. And I mean, if you look back in I think it was September of last year, the IFA launched their one up north, and uh, there was a lot of press there and a lot of positive press out of it. A lot of stuff is aspirational, and you know, you know, they're they're talking about what they hope to achieve. Uh, it's hard, to, yeah, it's hard even if you wanted to pick holes in it. But but it is kind of you know a time for laying out your stall as to how you d intend to develop the game, and that generally receives a lot of positive press. 
Uh, on this occasion, um, the FAI decided only to invite their media partners. Uh, there was three of them. I think only two went along. I mean, it's just it's just amazing to me that he didn't want maximum publicity, given that he's got so much good news uh, for everyone recently. For instance, he could have explained how he went and got all those extra tickets for the Irish people uh, from UEFA that have been announced uh, in numerous FAI emails in, in recent weeks. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's been a strange kind of couple of weeks or certainly a week or so in, in terms of the extra tickets and the, the messages from from um, from the uh, from UEFA. Uh, I, I mean, that's a, it's a kind of interesting case in point and it's one of the one of the things that I think uh, a lot of the, 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 the people who cover the game full time or cover the FA, like, I mean, the FAI would call, make up a significant amount of my work time. Uh, but it's one of the interesting things that, that people kind of tend to react against is this attempt to credit absolutely everything good that happens in the association to John Delaney personally. And then when anything bad happens, like the kind of, you know, uh, the, the, the distribution of tickets in... Um, uh, for the Scotland game last year or the, now the year before you have John coming out and kind of going well you know somebody in the back office came up to me and apologised for taking their eye off the ball you know <laughs> uh, so he's he's a great man like he, he, he doesn't he's not a great man for taking responsibility for you know you know corporate responsibility as the man at the top the book stops with me no he will he will he will point to an unnamed underling uh, somewhere in, in Abbottstown uh, who has uh, who has screwed something up royally but as soon as something goes well it's it's absolutely down to him now last week we had a a, a couple of these press, press releases which were absolutely down the line John Delaney has, has secured spoken uh, to UEFA uh, yeah yeah. Has, yeah yeah exactly and and in one of these there's a couple of there was a couple of incidents one was the tickets right one the original batch of tickets now on the day of the uh, launch for this uh, technical plan he also announced that another 1200 tickets had been uh, secured for 400 for each game i don't know what the story with those was but earlier in the week uh, there was a, a press release that um, uh, I think 6,000 tickets had been uh, secured, different numbers for different games, but 25% increase in what we had before. It was good news, you know. Um, but absolutely, it was down to John Delaney. No doubt left in anybody's minds about it. What wasn't made clear was whether, you know, the IFA president had been, or chief executive, had been quite so directly involved in securing all the extra tickets that the IFA got, or the Welsh Federation president had been quite so uh, prominent in uh, getting their tickets, yeah. or the Swedish chief executive, and the Swedes, let's say, managed to get fractionally more tickets for their game against us than we got for, for the game yeah. uh, in the same few days was so prominent. And none of those associations make such a big deal of their, of their executives roles in these things. And what you also had, I think, the day before, the day after that ticket announcement was an announcement about debit cards. And again, once again, John Delaney was very specifically credited with having gone batting to UEFA on behalf of the Irish punter. And on this, inst in this, on this occasion, um, the, the, the triumph achieved was that uh, debit as well as credit cards would be um, usable yeah, for, for the purchase of tickets for year 2016. A lot of people were supposed to have put debit Debit cards down unwittingly when when the thing specifically said credit cards and so the FAI put out a press release in which it was said quite clearly again that John Delaney had done this he had achieved this on behalf of the people well in the next paragraph unbelievably in their own press press release they have a quote from a UEFA spokesman going yeah you know this was always the situation he took debit cards last year what's the big deal here of course they'll work you know it was bewildering so so anyway you know this is this you is can, the sort of thing we're up against you can understand though because John Delaney's philosophy on these sort of things because he he stated it really explicitly recently um in the course of his um when he was kind of hanging out in Tipperary not canvassing for Alan Kelly yeah according to Alan Kelly and 
Uh, and, and he talked about the importance uh, to the people of South Tipperary of having a, their own man in the cabinet. Yeah. Uh, and he said, that's my message, uh, to thank him for his support for soccer clubs. And hopefully when the election, when you announce it, Alan, when mm. the election is coming, the people remember uh, being a minister is hugely important in any county to deliver for that county. Uh, you know, that's, that is a, a way of operating. It's seen as, I, I mean, I remember when... Uh, when the the kind of there was a shift in the way that the, the Aviva Stadium, the or the FAI's share of the money for that was being was was being kind of uh, made. You know, we were originally we were going to pay up front. We were going to write a big fund size check and present it to the builder on uh, the day of completion. Um, John had said that absolutely no problem. The FAI would do do this, and then then later on he said that we pay out of the out of, out of the huge amount of money that was going to be generated from Vantage Club ten year tickets, and then that didn't really come to pass either. So so now suddenly we were we were kind of you know, borrowing all the money and uh, you know, it was going to stretch out into the future and there was a new target date set uh, for for the uh, payments to be uh, completed. And the then uh, finance director of the association went down to the AGM somewhere and said, well, you know, this is a legitimate way of doing it. This is, you know, UEFA recognised this as a legitimate way of funding the stadium, right? Which was, it was a long, long, long way from what had originally been envisaged by John Delaney in his public utterances. But that's fine. Okay, that is seen as a, a public way. If we if we deliver by 2020, then you know I kind of believe it when I see it. But that's you know the latest target. But for John Delaney, this whole kind of clientelism, you know, it, it's an Irish way of doing things. You know, and and if you're going to do that, then fine. I kind of recognise that. But John's problem isn't on on that front. You know, absolutely. There's no doubt. I've been at AGMs where he's got standing ovations. Not so much recently. I, I mean, people reported the one last year. Thought it was very lukewarm, divided. I thought you could see cracks in it. Maybe that's just me. I, but certainly previously in Wexford a few years back, you know, all the all the lads from the Aircom League having to go, or the, sorry, the Electricity League as is now, having to kind of reluctantly stand up because they look so bad because the whole rest of the room, like it was, you know, they were really kind of giving them an ovation. So he's popular amongst the grassroots and that's based on the fact that he, you know, gets out there, pounds the streets, drives down the country roads, does, you know unbelievable numbers of gigs each year handing out money for goalposts or whatever and people feel that they're getting a few quid from him and he you know he presses the flesh and all that sort of stuff so it's a way of doing it but then in other ways in other ways it seems that he's so poor at it so so on the one hand he's keeping the constituency here happy and he's keeping the people who support him close to him and and the part of the result of that has been that you know uh, many years ago <clears throat> excuse me uh, the FAI proposed a change, a rule change at UEFA level, whereby they uh, they introduce uh, age caps for members of the Exco and other committees, um, and that was adopted, and it was seen as a very progressive thing by the FAI. And if I, uh, Tony O'Neill was behind it, and uh, Des Casey, and if I remember correctly, Des Casey sort of did it against himself. It ensured his early retirement from the organisation. He's the last Exco member uh, we had uh, at UEFA level, last very very influential person. Well, uh, you know. Alan, you take the Alan Kelly example, being at the top table, you know, it pays dividends. He deli- he says he delivered for Tipperary. John Delaney clearly believes that as well. But last year, he raised the age limits here for, you know, so that some of his supporters could stay on the board. Uh, three people are affected by that. They raised the limit to, I think, 75 years of it's age. It's a very senior board. That it is a very there. senior board. It was already a very experienced board, I think John would say, a very, very experienced board. But he raised the age limits there so that three members could stay on. And you, know, you have these three guys in their 70s. Well, they're very senior members of the FAI, but they're not entitled to sit on any committee at UEFA level where they could be battling for, our, for, for you know, the FAI and for Irish football 
but they're not allowed to sit on any of those committees because they're too old. And, you know, it just seems completely counterproductive. For a man who's devoted and an advocate of that sort of system, it seems so self-defeating. It's remarkable. Just to go back to what we started with, and that was the... Now, just to, just to kind of clarify a couple of things around the the launch or what the actual issue is there with the yeah. likes of yourself, for example, not being invited yeah. to, to cover this. This idea that the the FAI are going to grant more access or more interviews to the rights holders yeah. is you know, not unique at all. To no. the, the, I'm sure the other sports do that yeah, as well. Yeah, I'm not complaining you, about you, that. You're more likely to no. get better better access. So, what is your what would your issue be with regards to this particular? Is whatever about giving a one on one maybe to one station or another? What's your issue around not? Uh, around something like I th- this not being yeah, I think the issue all. about this really is, is generally one of, of accountability. Now, people might think that this is kind of very, you know, high and mighty of me or any other football correspondent to feel that, you know, we're, it's our God-given, you know, mm. right to, to hold Delaney to account. Or they might feel that, you know, I mean, look, look, you take Friday, you know, the bottom line is people go, oh, you, 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 I was being, it's been suggested that I was just kind of like put out that I wasn't there. I can tell you, I can live without, you know, uh, Friday trips to uh, to Abbottstown. But, the bottom line here is that, you know, we're, there's a group of people in the media here who are paid to know about, you know, football generally. But kind of the, the one brief that we have that, that is quite specialist is the FAI and, and how the game is run here. And John Delaney has not done a, a press conference where, you know, any football journalist could turn up with a reasonable expectation that he would, you know, answer questions in, I think it is since 2012 in uh, in, in Donegal it's at, amazing. at the it's AGM. Yeah. That, that's now, the last time that there was a. a that's a, the last time that an invitation to an event went out to that, that you could And that there was a full QA, because obviously you can go to the uh, FAI AGMs, for example, but as you said before, that you doesn't. Don't, you can't ask him any questions. That, well, well, he he, he hasn't taken any questions of the last yeah. three AGMs. So that used to be, though, the tradition was that uh, there would be there would be his speech and there'd be the financial report made available, which might, you know, have, have been kind of uh, leaked out there. The previous over the previous week, or they used to actually they used to actually issue it the day before the the FAI would would send it to you, uh, but they stopped that, um, and then you would get to ask him questions. Uh, that that has stopped for the last three years. Now it has stopped because he says he's getting very negative press, but which you know uh, you know you can argue whether it's a pejorative term, but he's certainly not coming well out of the press. But that is partly because so many of the things that he said would come to pass have not come to pass, and he's questioned about those things. As things stand now, I mean, on Friday, I think that the point for him was that this was an opportunity to project the association in a very positive way and get, you know, positive uh, publicity across the board. Or at least it would be under normal circumstances. I think their argument would have been that had we gone out there, we would have started asking about the five million from FIFA. We might have asked about the, the IRA song in the pub late at night, which is, you know, over a year ago, but we haven't had a chance to ask him about it since. And so there's this backlog of, of kind of negative issues and how, of course, um, there were legal threats made against uh, various kind of media outlets in, in the wake of that, uh, which never kind of completely been clarified. He did one or two, um, he did one or two media interviews at the time um, You'd have to say generally uh, the tone of them was focused entirely on the fact that his partner it was was taking some stick on on Twitter um, and thus kind of a, a avoiding the the, the so everybody yeah I remember those ones yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, with John Delaney is obviously well versed in in dealing with the media at this point of his career yeah why do you think he wouldn't just Say right, come on, you know, come and come and have a go here, lads. <laughs> no, but you know what I, I mean. Like, I, no, as, I, as in, as in, I understand exactly. But whatever about a one-on-one interview, I, I can see how that gets very difficult because the same yeah. journalist gets to keep probing, keep probing, keep probing. But when it's a press conference like that, 
he could dead bat certain things. He could, sure, he could back himself to be able to deal with whatever is thrown at him. Uh, do you know what? I agree completely. I, mm. You know, I don't think I, I, I think it was only a couple of papers really kind of wrote in any in any substantial way about what happened uh, on Friday. Um, you mean about the fact that about the fact that uh, yeah. yeah. So you have you know you had the Independent who were there. Uh, you had I think the Sun and my uh, and myself here in the Irish Times. Uh, you know, wrote very negatively about the way the situation was handled. I can't imagine that. Um, that if I'd gone out there and asked him about the five million and asked him about the song and the IRA song and asked him about the fact that his partner, rather than either the president or the honorary secretary of the association, is sitting in the delegation seats at the draw for uh, for the European Championship finals, I think of any you know any number of other things that you can. I can't imagine. I'm not going to get you know a page to work with. I can't imagine that the piece is any any more negative than it was on on, on Saturday. And then a lot of it's kind of done, you know. And then the next time there's a there's a positive launch, then he is in a position to bring people out. That would be my view on it. I mean, clearly it's not the way he sees it. All right, Emmett, great to talk to you for the, the first time about this this year. Oh, cheers. Beef made a movie recently. Did they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did, actually. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Seth Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego. But the real movie's on its way. Yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. We were one or two explosives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, well, I do. And that was it. We were one or two explosives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved when I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive views, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, if they like. And we've used the figure there. Well done to you. All right, we alluded to Alan Kelly there again in that interview. Mm. And I'm sure you've read the Sunny Independent interview that he has done Hasn't with everyone. Neve Horn. Power is a drug, it suits me, he declares. <laughs> Power is a drug, it suits me, is the headline. That is brilliant. And that is that is a quote, I believe. Yeah. Mm. Um, I can get the elongated quote if you give me a second here. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, you see, it, it's revealed that he watches House of Cards. So I think Neve Horn takes him up on that idea of uh, you know a power being at the center of that he says well anybody who says that power isn't attractive is telling you a lie of course it is it's obviously a drug it's attractive it's something you thrive on it suits some people it doesn't suit does not suit others i think it suits me <laughs> well that's great um i went to school at four i finished at 16 i had my degree at 19 i was achieving early in life i'm very ambitious extremely ambitious probably one of the most ambitious people you're ever going to interview is this all conor mcgregor's fault <laughs> is this conor mcgregor's influence it's serious is this what's happening here everybody is now just talk, talking about themselves as though they are the big i am that's just the way it is now in this country it's only taken a couple of years and what seven knockouts in a row and this is to completely reshape uh, the ethics of people in this country so that boasting is now like a, actually a good thing and not something to be embarrassed of. ESPN's John Bruin is ready to talk about the imminent departure of John Terry from Chelsea after more than 20 years at the club. John, and when a legendary player leaves their clubs, there's usually this carefully 
choreographed, carefully crafted joint statement expressing mutual admiration. This time, the player alone has, the, the, has delivered the scoop, I should say. It's an exclusive, a John Terry exclusive about John Terry's imminent departure. Seemed important for JT to get the news out himself? Well, it's very John Terry, isn't it? It's the type of thing that he has made a career of. He seizes the agenda for himself. Um, over the years, I've been present at a few John Terry mix zones and stuff like that. And um, he has uh, to speak to uh, as a journalist. He is uh, almost he's very revealing. He will always pretty try and tell his side of the story and uh, steer things in his direction. And, and in this case, um, when I heard that he he talked about his contract in the mix zone, I wasn't surprised at all because I spent the last two seasons actually uh, in various mix zones where John Terry talked about his contract all the way. And uh, journalists know to ask him about that because he will talk about it freely. Um, I suppose, it, it, yes, as you, as you said, it is him seizing the agenda, um, not allowing Chelsea spin doctors to massage the, the message, uh, as was the way a little bit, let's say, with Steven Gerrard's last season, which eventually still blew up in Liverpool's face. Um, and, and in a way, John Terry is, has told the fans, those that uh, he probably, you know, that feels close to him, that, um, you know, that it's not him to blame for, for leaving. It's he wanted to stay. He still wants to be Mr. Chelsea. Um, and if they want have someone to blame, then it is uh, the board or the people that make the deals who yeah, I would suggest are Michael Aminalo, the sporting director, and uh, Marina Granovskaya, who's the, one of the club directors. She does a negotiation. So, uh, yeah, JT, season the agenda. That's just his way, isn't it? Uh, it seems like the act of a man who isn't entirely at peace with the decision himself. Well, no, not at all. I mean, I think the thing is... Um, even this season, Terry's talked about wanting to stay at the club for, for longer. Um, in pre-season, he talks of trying to play for the club at the same time for the length of time as as Ryan Giggs. Um, I suppose at a certain point, you have to consider that, that there will be uncertainty in John Terry's mind about what lies beyond Chelsea. Now he's been at the club since he was fourteen, give or take a brief spell at Nottingham Forest on loan as a, as a, as, a, as a kid. Um, and at Chelsea, um, I mean, if you go to Chelsea, um, even on the days when John Terry is not playing, John Terry is visible. John Terry is often to be found in the press room, chatting away to people at the, at the buffet, tucking into the food and, you know, ha has a word for everybody. Um, he is part of the furniture at Chelsea and has been denied that status by uh, the nixing of his, of his negotiations with, with the club. So... He is obviously a little annoyed by this. And I have to say, him saying, he did say, didn't he, that uh, they've said it's no for the moment. It did seem to be suggesting that, uh, you know, a, a bit of a last gasp hope to try and get something revived. But the word from Chelsea appears to be that the decision will be the next managers, who, and we don't know who that is. Um, and, of course, the other problem with that is that the next manager may not want to have a near 36-year-old uh centre-back who is ageing, plus a captain who has had uh, significant influence over the team over the last almost two decades, I suppose. Uh, managers tend to want a clean slate, and that doesn't really um, speak well of Terry's chance of getting a, um, well, getting a deal done, which I, still, which I believe he would still probably want to be done. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a piece by um, Martin Samuel 
in the Daily Mail who who strikes a kind of a note of consternation at this decision and uh, compares it to uh, Stephen Gerrard's departure of Liverpool, which you, which you mentioned. He said, uh, what is shocking is that Chelsea, like so many of the big brand clubs these days, seem to have no idea what to do with an iconic figure once he is no longer the first name on the team sheet. Uh, and, and he obviously goes on to draw the comparison with Gerrard. Now, the thing about Gerrard as I think Martin Samuel does make out, you know, he was he was in clear decline as a player by the time they, they decided, okay, we're we're going to move on. Is the same not true of John Terry? Well, it, okay, we go back to last season. He played every minute of the season for Chelsea, and and. Uh, in a title win, which was pretty much won by their defence. Well, um, I mean, but that's 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 fair enough. I mean, if, if we think about Stephen Gerrard at Liverpool as well, his second last season was a, was a triumph. You know, yes. he, he he played he played some fantastic football, but it was like he'd kind of given everything there was left in the tank, and and it was the last season that was a that was panned out as a, as a real disaster. And I have to say that John Terry's season this year has not been uh, hugely impressive. No, it hasn't. It's not been as impressive as perhaps Martin Samuel made out in the article you mentioned. Um, I mean, though, as, as, as Martin Samuel says, um, every player has been taken out of the defence to make to try and uh, effect a change in what was a really <laughs> faltering unit for up until December when Gus Hiddink came in. Um, but the fact is, he's 35 years old. Branislav Ivanovic got a new contract, but he's four years younger. Now, Ivanovic, I would say his form was much worse than Terry's, but there is a chance that he could revive that at his age. And uh, there is also the, the uh, factor that he himself has quite a close relationship with the, the owner, Roman Abramovich. Terry, um, I am told, um, at the club has become, over the years, as the, the guard has changed, his old friends have gone. Petr Cech was the last to go on. Didier Drogba um, has seen, been seen back at the club, but uh, we don't know of his future just yet. And obviously Frank Lampard's gone. Terry is now a bit of an isolated figure. I mean, he's still the leader on the field, still the, the guy that delivers pep talks in the, in the dressing room, but he's not John Terry, Mr Chelsea, who is, you know, leading the clubs, the players on and off the, off the pitch. Um, there comes a time, doesn't there, where clubs have to cut the cord with a player. And I suppose, if, from from a footballing sense, if a club is going to get in a new manager um, and is actually looking to wipe the slate clean at the club because uh, the last six months have been an absolute disaster and they need to look for new ideas, then it's best to rid yourself, possibly, it's probably best to rid yourself of somebody who is going to be there saying, well, this is how we used to do things. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, that, that, that whole point about these, um, you know, superstar players. And I mean, the likes of Jared and Terry are kind of at a level above, level beyond what most players get to at any individual club. That's true. But their status is based on their ability as footballers. And once that starts to go, their status is, is kind of out of keeping with their actual usefulness to the club. They, be, they become a kind of, um, a presence which is far too dominant, I think, for its own good. I mean, a point which is raised by uh, by Martin Samuel uh, to illustrate what he thinks would be Ger- uh, Terry's um, continuing value to Chelsea is, uh, would latest signing Matt Miazga, a 20-year-old from New York Bulls, not have benefited from a few games with Terry by his side? Is Kurt Zuma the finished product yet? Hell, even Gary Cahill rarely looks the same player unless Terry is in the vicinity. So this idea of John Terry is this kind of, like... Um, 
Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting figure who 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 gets the potential out of all the people around him. I must say, I've never thought of John Terry as that kind of guy. He's always seemed to be really about looking after number one to me. I mean, a, a great defender, sure, but not necessarily the sort of mentor figure that Martin Samuel seems to have in pegged us. No, I think I think Terry's. You have to actually go back to the fact that Terry's quality of a player has been has been so high. That's what's kept him in the team. Um, I suppose you know be, there will be a sense that it, he he is able to inspire other players. That does seem to be, uh, you know, he's been captain of Chelsea since he was in his early twenties. Uh, Fabio Capello was prepared to actually lose his job over uh, John Terry. There is something there which uh, managers and maybe other players are drawn to. Um, but I do think that you know football is quite a cruel game because you know your players can be as good as they want but they can't be as good as they want for as long as they want. And um, you go back to Manchester United, Alex Ferguson was able to manage Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes' involvement by having other good players around him, around them. And uh, actually, because they were quieter individuals and Alex Ferguson was so dominant, they were able to take a bit of a back seat, whereas Terry is still that sort of forefront, the voice of the fans on the pitch, that type of thing. And... Chelsea are obviously looking to to change things at the moment. Um, they're, I would suggest, desperately looking around for a new manager. Um, look at some of the transfer dealings they've done. Actually, in January, which you know, no one else has really done much, but they brought in the, the American lad you spoke of. Uh, um, uh, uh, Alexandra Pato's coming in, which is a strange deal. Ramirez has gone. Things are obviously they're obviously looking to change things around. And if you've got a player like John Terry, who's on £150,000 a week um, and some baggage alongside that, then perhaps it's best to cut the cord now. Um, it's not nice. John Terry obviously doesn't like the decision, but that's the kind of decision that football clubs make. And the, the possibility is there at 35 that he can still go and make some money elsewhere. And that does seem to be his aim at the moment. Do you see him back at Chelsea as first team manager at some point? Well, there was a there was a rumor, wasn't there, years ago that when John Terry was negotiating a contract, um, I think probably about the time. Remember when Manchester City came in for him? Uh, it was about two thousand and nine, just after they had uh, come into the Abu Dhabi money. That John Terry was trying to negotiate his contract, uh, and at the end of that five year contract, he would be. No, I think it was. I think John it was. It was a, like a nine. Year it was contract. an eight or nine year contract, <laughs> yeah. and they, then he was going to be, be manager or something. Was yeah, that it? That was it. Yeah. Yes, that was Amazing. the one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know. But as far as I know, I don't think he's involved How do they not, in how do they not agree to that? I mean, I don't see any issue with that. It's a, it's, that's, that's long-term planning. That's what that is. Yeah, as far as I know, I don't think he's you know involved himself too much in the coaching side of things. So obviously that plan has gone uh, a little. And of course, he did manage the team during that game, uh, the temporary game uh, after Andre Villas-Boas had been sacked, where... Uh, I think he subbed himself off and then stood on the sideline, pretty much gesturing the players through the game. Was that a game against Napoli? Napoli? Yeah, I think Napoli, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was one of the most magnificent displays I've ever seen. I mean, there's a leader of man for you. Look at that; that was incredible. Um, but it, again, I do, I'm sort of actually. I have to go back to United again. You know, you've got this thing where Ed Woodward seems a little reluctant to let the class of '92 back into the into the uh, back through the gates. Oh, yes. You could understand why that, that might be an element of caution there, yes. 
Yes, but I do think there could be a similar thing with with, with John Terry, um, with the onus. Um, I don't believe he has a particularly close relationship with Roman Abramovich um, or Mike and Emanalo or Marina Granovskaya, and they're the power brokers at the club at the end of it. Um, but, you know, uh, we, we, we sort of... And the other thing is, modern football is not the way it used to be, where a great player has a chance of managing their club, say, with Kenny Dalglish, with Liverpool and stuff like that. I, I sometimes Co- wonder about that, John. I mean, with all the stuff, I mean, Jared. oh, why, why don't you give Jared a coaching job at Liverpool? And when is Ryan Giggs going to be the, the Man United manager? Even there's, there still seems to be plenty of that sort of thing about. Yeah, there does, actually. And a lot of it comes from ex-pros, doesn't it? Who, who seem to say, yeah, well, no one knows this club better than them. But the problem is that it, there is that equation, isn't there? It's very rare that a great player becomes a, a, a great manager. I mean, you've got, I suppose, Johan Cruyff, you've got Franz Beckenbauer who won the World Cup, but there aren't many beyond that, really, um, that you could that you could suggest. And um, I don't have John Terry down as a great tactical brain, someone that could uh, unwind the formula that Pep Guardiola might have struck up to play Chelsea. Um I don't know. I mean, you know, the other problem is with John Terry as a club ambassador. Um, his public image is not fantastic. Um, one of the problems is suggested that why he's always been so keen to get contracts done is that his sponsorship potential has not been great after the problems he's had with being accused of racism, a couple of tabloid tales and all that type of thing. Um, I suppose among Chelsea fans, you know, John Terry is, is still the man. But uh, you, would you be able to use him on corporate junkets to the Far East, to America and so on and so forth? There might be a risk factor involved in that. Um, a bit of an uncertain future for John Terry, and I think that's probably why he's chosen to go public. It's the actions of a bit of a wounded animal, I'd have to say. Yep, John, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers, lads. Uh, I've got a couple more details here on that story of John Terry demanding to be the next manager. Mm-hmm. In previous contract negotiations, uh, I've had a little look here. May 2007, Matt Hughes of the Times in London reports. John Terry, the Chelsea and England defender, made the remarkable disclosure last night that during recent contract negotiations, he had asked for a clause that would give him the option to take over as Chelsea manager at the end of his playing career. Terry insists that he wants to stay at Stamford Bridge and is confident of signing a new deal in the summer, but he would have to rethink his demands for a nine-year contract as a club's highest paid player. So then, then come the quotes. <laughs> I don't know about emulating Jose. But I'd certainly like to manage one day. When I was speaking about my contract with Chelsea, I was talking about a nine-year deal and maybe with an option to manage at the end of it. It's the way I want to go. I want to get to my badges. I want to get my badges and make that decision at the end of it. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Nine years actually would have taken him right up to no. where, where he got. Yeah, it was, At least he managed to estimate. Uh, well, yeah. well, actually, I mean, he's he, saying, knew, yeah, he was saying then that he'd, he'd probably be finished up as a player in 2016, but now in 2016, he's saying he's still got a couple of years left in Often the tank. Often that's the way it happens. He had to settle for a five-year deal that time or made him the highest-paid player in the Premier League history. He nearly drowned in his own Kool-Aid there, though. <laughs> I mean, that's an extraordinary level of, uh, of uh, self-confidence. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Oh, there's more. Do you want to hear more? No, there's not. There can't be any more. In a remarkably candid interview aired on BBC's Inside Sport programme last night. So this is still, I'm I'm taking it from this old Times article, but the quotes came from BBC's Inside Sport. Terry also discussed his arrest on charges of wounding with intent after a nightclub fight in West London five years ago. (sighs) I wasn't where he had ever talked about that particularly. But anyway, I was in a cell for 22 hours. It was the worst feeling of my life, being in there and knowing I hadn't done anything wrong. Growing up, my dad taught me if someone hits you, hit them back. Simple as that. 
that's what happened in the court case. My friend was getting beaten up by four bouncers and I stepped in and punched one of the guys. If that's wrong and it happened tomorrow, I would do the same thing tomorrow. They were coming at me. I took a swing and caught the guy. It was a key moment in my life and thankfully, I've chosen the right path. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, JT then, they're showing his leadership qualities once again. The same we leadership qualities we that yeah. we know. Yeah, we are nobody, where we are. Uh, nobody messes with JT. Do you think that his status within the group is too dominant to allow him just to remain there for another season or so oh, yeah. while gradually getting frozen out? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think he can do it. I think he's constitutionally incapable of of taking a backseat well, playing clear, a what about the, role. What about the football intelligence that he clearly has? He's clearly smart about the about what it takes for a team to win um, and what it takes for a defence to function. Is he smart enough he's to... He's smart at doing it. Is he smart at getting other people to do it? Well, he's a good organiser. He's always barking those other guys. Yeah, he's he's definitely mounty enough, all right. Um, but I, I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if that necessarily always translates uh, to the ability to ma- to manage a team, to no, coach a team. To yeah, lead sorry, I wasn't so much talking about to manage a team. I just mean to manage the end of his career at Chelsea, were he to stay on, to realise that actually I don't have to cause waves here. I can be helpful to these, to these other players under the next manager without necessarily having to play most games. But, you know, as you can hear, you, you heard John talking about it there, Terry's position at Chelsea isn't really what it was. I mean, he's, he's obviously this legendary figure among the supporters, you know, kind of a, a godlike figure. It's been a tough year for those supporters. First Jose, now John. You know, when is this? <laughs> and, you know, and probably Mourinho's going to end up at Man United. And maybe John Terry as well. Imagine John Terry playing for Jose Mourinho at Man United. I mean, how many people could had there would there ever have been a transfer deal that would have made more people unhappy than that? Uh, but you know, who knows? I mean, what I'm the the point that I started off before I got distracted by that more interesting point. Yeah, was about John Terry's. Uh, I mean, okay, he's got the. He, okay, here he is at Chelsea. He used to be the the center of the dressing room. Now he's not. It, why he he took his eye off the ball? It seemed to me as though he kind of he grew old with his with his clique, and now they're all gone. Well, he just grew Did old he, as a footballer. Yeah, but you know he didn't. It's not like he he befriended the new generations of players coming through. You know what I mean? And not nor did he. It seems uh, spend quite as much time as he probably should have tending his relations with the club hierarchy. Um, I suppose they've been put under strain at various times in, in ways that, like someone like Frank Lampard, you know, who barely ever seemed to have a negative story about him, uh, you know, in, in, a fo- in a football sense. Uh, I mean, Lampard is clearly a favoured son of that hierarchy. You know, he's always hanging out back at Stamford Bridge, you know, when he's back home from America. Mm. You know, I can easily imagine Lampard being the Sky Pundit. I can imagine Lampard being a club ambassador. You know, Terry, Terry it seems, hasn't been quite as as diligent as Lampard in, in looking after things. Maybe he just thought people would always bow down to him, but as soon as you're not able to play football anymore, it turns out you're just a bit like every other guy. Do you think in another 10 years it'll be a class of 2005 for Chelsea's hierarchy to have to contend with? All these guys lurking around the background. JT, Lamps, Didier. No. Ricks. No. I That's don't Ricardo Carvalho, of course. Che- Chelsea. And who's the fifth? Who's the fifth class of 2005? Claude uh, McAlele? Well, <laughs> Peter Alexi, Cech. Alexi Smertine. Yeah, Czech actually is quite a... Quite a um, yeah, fair, uh, no. I, I, Chelsea don't have the same problem uh, as Manchester United. I mean, Man United's problem, or one of their problems, appears to be uh, chief uh, executive vice chairman, or whatever the uh, title is of Woodward. Who's, you know, it's it's difficult to describe someone as weak, uh, but sometimes he does seem to vacillate a little. 
in terms of what he what he's looking for. You know, there was Moyes for six years, but it was actually only for ten months. There was Van Hal, the man, and we'll see how long that lasts. You know what I mean? Now, in each of those instances, I'm not. Sure, I don't know. I mean, Chelsea, uh, Chelsea obviously sacked managers as well, but there's it, there's clearly only really one person in charge there. You know what I mean? I don't, and I don't think that Abramovich is quite as vulnerable to outside yeah, influences. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I think Ed Woodward has got a big listening ear. He always he likes to canvas opinion and take on take on board views. To, and who wouldn't in his position? Whereas Abramovich, I think, maybe is more making up his own mind. It's it's not as vulnerable to to outside groups jockeying for influence. That's just about it for this podcast. We will talk about the Australian Open Tennis and the start of the Allianz League in the in our second show out on Monday afternoon. But if that's not enough for you, I'm delighted. I think I can announce that we the release of an extra bonus podcast, mm-hmm. Six Nation Special, tomorrow morning. We'll have it for you first thing Tuesday morning. So totally separate to the usual podcasts later in the week. Five podcasts, one for every day this week. That's pretty pretty good stuff. That should keep everyone going. Yeah, oh, that's pretty good. Happy enough with that. I always good. gets pep in my step thinking about these extra bonus podcasts. So ah, well, looking forward to bringing that to you. That your charity be, knows no bands. Yeah, that'll be out on Tuesday morning. In the meantime, thanks very much, Kent. Thank you, too. Thanks Thank you, Kenny. Around. Thank you, Onzi. Thank Thanks you, for listening. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 